2: Are there missing years in your state pension record? It's now really easy to go online and check how many years of national insurance contributions you've clocked up, but many FT readers have been shocked to discover missing years in their records. A widespread problem, our resident pensions expert Joe Cumbo drops in to advise what can be done. A long-awaited plan to simplify inheritance tax has just been announced. FT Money reporter Emma Adjimang is here to fill us in on what could change, how families stand to be affected, and if it will ever happen. And even if you're feeling flush, please spare a thought for up to 3 million UK households who are stuck in a debt trap spending a growing slice of their income servicing expensive borrowings. Following the cap on payday lenders, debt campaigners are calling for all high-cost credit products to be included will regulators listen. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. More than 12 million people have checked their state pension contributions online since the launch of the government-run website Check Your State Pension three years ago, but many of them have not found what they were hoping to see. Seeing that there are missing years in your national insurance contributions is a problem that can be corrected for a price. But what if there has been a mistake in your records that wasn't your fault? The government has been forced to admit that errors have occurred in hundreds of thousands of records, but it's not clear how these records can be corrected or who is responsible for spotting any mistakes. Joining me now on the line is Lindsay Jones, an executive editor at the FT and one of several readers who contacted us after checking state pension records online and finding something unexpected. Welcome, Lindsay. Hello, Claire. So tell me what happened when you went online to check your state pension?
1: Well, I was expecting to see that I'd uh, accrued nearly 35 years of my state pension. Um, and that I was on track to get the full state pension, which is uh, around Mm. £8,700 currently. Um, But I was absolutely shocked to see that uh, I had a missing year, which was around 1988 to eighty-nine, so almost 30 years ago, or around 30 years ago. Um, And so uh, I then wanted to look into that and to see what was wrong, because I did have a full-time job during that tax year.
2: And and at that time, you were a -A PAYE, pay-as-you-earn employee.
1: Yes, yes. I was I was starting out in my career as a journalist and I was a, a reporter and a news editor on a on a local weekly paper that was called the Egham Informer
2: back in those days in, in deepest Surrey. But the Egham Informer may not have informed HRC <laughs> that you paid um, your NICs for that year, or something else could have happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I personally don't think the company... Was at fault. I mean, Neil Formal was part of the yellow advertiser group at that time. And part of my problem is that, that the newspaper is either since folded or, or uh, merged into various other uh, newspaper groups
2: along its uh, company history. That's pretty um, much but, any company that listeners were working for 30 years ago. There's a pretty high probability that, yes. you know, that company either won't exist or will have been acquired or merged and records just don't exist.
1: Yeah, and also I can remember, you know, back then I was a PAY employee, as you said, and I I got my monthly paychecks and there was tax and national insurance contributions deducted. And I'm sure had there been a fault at the company end, that uh, HMRC would have been in touch with me saying I hadn't paid my tax. Um, and that didn't happen. Um, I've never been alerted to the fact there was an issue a- around this. Um and uh, I was earning about £8,000 at the time, which was well above the threshold um, for making these contributions. So I was completely shocked to see that that wasn't recorded. So I actually think it's HMRC's missing records, actually, is where I think the problem lays. Um, and they have told me that they have a lot of cases um, where people do have their records that go, that go missing. And it just seems that they're in
2: chaos, to be honest. Now, you contacted HMRC when you saw that there was a gap. What did they tell you?
1: Yes. So they, they said that I needed to provide evidence, and that evidence has to be either a P45, from 30 years ago, uh, uh, you know, relating to this tax year, um, or a P60, or a wage slip, um, or a bank statement. Now, um, I tried to contact uh, um, uh, Reach, who uh, was Trinity Mirror, who in the midst of time have ended up owning at least the Staines Informer, which I think is one of the uh, one of the existing newspapers from that time. But they're not obliged to keep records, I believe, for about more than six or seven years. So they don't have any records and can help me. And equally, uh, my bank at at that time is also not obliged (laughs) to keep historic um, bank statements. So I haven't kept any of those paper records and neither have either of these institutions. And I think really my point is I don't feel it's my responsibility to sort out a mistake that I believe was made by England Revenue. Um, And it
2: shouldn't be on me. I paid my tax. I paid my national insurance. All I want... Um, is the benefit that I'm, I've owed and I've accrued. Now, HMRC told the Financial Times it has not been able to find a record of Lindsay Jones's missing year, but also said there was no widespread or systemic problem with missing records. Nevertheless, we know that Lindsay is not alone. Since FT Money wrote about this issue last weekend, plenty of readers have got in touch to our email money at ft.com, telling us of similar experiences. Joining me now in the studio is Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pension correspondent, who was writing all about the issue last week. Welcome, Jo. Hello, Claire. Well, we've just heard from Lindsay there, a case in point, but... What kinds of people could be most likely to be affected by errors in their national insurance records? Anyone could be affected.
0: If you're working and paying national insurance and relying on your employer to make that payment to the HMRC, anyone could be affected by these problems. But as... Lindsay has highlighted there are people who are more prone and more likely to run into errors, and that's if, for example, they were working for an employer which went bust or went under, and it's very difficult to track down that employer if there's a dispute over national insurance contributions, that they were paid or not. I've heard from several readers who have who have told me that they couldn't Trace the employer, they were sure their national insurance was paid by them, but HMRC is disputing it. So there's a category of workers who are caught out in that sort of workplace situation. There's also millions of workers who were contracted out of mm. the state second pension. Now, contracting out just means that they paid less national insurance in return for getting a, a promise or a guaranteed workplace pension. And that was a, an arrangement that went on for decades from the 70s through to 2016. Now, if you're contracted out, you were typically going to get a, a lower state pension than than usual, than normal. But there's lots of problems with the way HMRC has accounted for the reduced national insurance contributions paid by contracted out workers. So that is another area that um, is problematic for record keeping. So those are the two key areas where people are finding that they have issues with gaps, but readers have also got in touch. Several of them did to say that they've gone overseas. They've they've written to HMRC to say, look, I'm chasing up my state pension record. And, and one reader said, HMRC denied that they even existed. Oh, so, me. I mean, they're very they're caught in this sort of Kafka-esque situation of having to go through departments and to try and prove that they exist to this uh, organisation, even though they've got records of employment history. So those are the sort of key areas where people are running into trouble.
2: And the other issue is that some of the records that people are able to access online via the Czech state pension um, website may themselves be incorrect. And the government has admitted that this is a problem too.
0: Yes, this is separate to the issue of gaps in national insurance records. This is a problem that was identified or brought to light two months ago, about the forecasts which are being produced by online, by the State Pension Forecast Service. There's a particular problem between what the online records are saying and what paper records have said before. There's an inconsistency and the government says that, yes, it's admitted that there is a significant problem with the online forecast. So it's people going on to the Check Your State Pension Service online and getting wrong forecasts, and typically they're being told that their state pension is worth more than it actually is. So, you know, people are building all their their foundations or what they think they're going to get is incorrect. Currently, the estimate of incorrect statements or forecasts, there could be around 400,000 statements that were wrong. The government owned up to, to saying you know that's how the scale of the pro- just to put it into perspective. There's been about twelve million forecasts produced, so that's about three percent. But if you're one of those people who've got the wrong forecast, you know you need to check to make sure that um, your
2: foundation, what you're basing it on, is correct. And if people who are listening to the show think, mm, "I'm not sure that my records are right," what can they do? Well, there's two
0: things. If you've logged online and you've got a state pension forecast and you're concerned about whether or not it is accurate, you can call the Future Pension Service, which produces, which is responsible for producing, or the the Future Pension Centre, which is responsible for producing these forecasts and ask for it to be reviewed. Now, I think the accuracy would be better if you have someone a human being, producing your forecast and reviewing it. So you can call the Future Pension Centre on 0800 731 0175 and ask for that forecast to be reviewed. If you are concerned about gaps in your national insurance record, you can call, you can check online. There's something called the Personal Tax Account, which HMRC produces. It's a service for you to check your national insurance record. And you need your government gateway login to you need, get into that one. Yeah, you need security and ID to get into your national insurance record. And again, if you're concerned about missing contributions or you dispute, such as a Lindsay situation, you can call HMRC and raise a dispute with them and they will want you, as Lindsay's case illustrated, to provide some evidence if you're claiming that, well, there were I did make contributions but they're not on my record you'll have to they'll ask you to produce evidence such as employer records or P60s from the past
2: now coming back to you on the line now Lindsay Jones this is the situation that you've currently got to in your impasse with HMRC they're asking for evidence you haven't got it quite reasonably so since 30 years has elapsed since your days on the Egham advertiser <laughs> but Give me Quite, quite reasonably so. Now that thirty years has elapsed since your days on the Egham Informer, so what's the next stage in your battle?
1: Well, I'm, I'm definitely uh, going to pursue this to the end, and so um, I think there is one more thing I can do, which is possibly trace the PAYE employee uh, reference number uh, from the previous tax year. But they've told me I can't do that until for another twelve weeks, until another sort of uh, question is resolved. But after that, if I get no joy, I'm definitely following this through to the dispute procedure and uh, possibly my MP and so on. I'm not letting this go. I'm entitled to that money. I want it back.
2: <laughs> well, I could say from working with Lindsay in the FT newsroom, she's not a woman to be argued with, so watch out HMRC. Thanks very much there to Lindsay Jones and Josephine Cumbo from the FT. We will keep following um, this story and Lindsay's battle to get her records corrected. And if you have experienced similar problems that you'd like to raise with us, you can email us, money at FT.com. And if you'd like to read more about ways that you can check your state pension and get records amended, then check out Joe's cover feature, Your State Pension. Beware The Missing Ears, which is available online now at ft.com slash money. Nearly 3 million UK households spend more than a quarter of their income on debt repayments, according to research carried out by the campaign group End the Debt Trap. It's a problem that particularly affects the poorest. Around half of those highly indebted households have incomes of less than £15,000 per year. Well, this week, a group of 28 anti-poverty charities and campaign groups have accused the UK financial watchdog of, quote-unquote, a lack of action on predatory lending, arguing it should extend End the cap is placed on payday loans to other forms of high cost credit, such as credit cards, doorstep lending and overdrafts. Well, joining me now in the studio is Sarah Jane Clifton, the director of the Jubilee Debt Campaign, a non-profit behind End the Debt Trap. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks very much, Claire. So I'd like to start by asking you, how does one define a debt trap? So we
3: um, define the debt trap as when levels of debt are both persistent and severe. Um, So to start with severe, if um, uh, households' debt repayments are relatively high compared to their level of income, and then persistent if it means they're going to take a very long time to actually get out of the debt trap to repay all of their debt, uh, both interest and the principal. We now know that there are about 9 million people, um, about 3 million households across the UK who are spending more than a quarter of their income on their debt repayments. So that would be an indicator of of severely indebtedness. Um, And as you said, just under half of those households um, earn less than £15,000 a year. So they're in the the lowest, uh, most poorest
2: households. Typically, if you are on a low income, you may also have a poor credit rating. Lenders will only Give you money if they can charge much higher rates of interest to compensate from that risk, which creates a big problem. Now, the regulator has already moved to cap some forms of high-cost credit, but can you explain how that cap works?
3: Sure. So actually, um, a few years ago, um, as part of an earlier review, the FCA, um, and actually in response to, to campaigning from civil society, the FCA introduced a cap on interest rates and charges for payday loans, um, which is high interest, short term credit, the sort of credit which is used to tide people over when they run out of money at the end of the month. The way that cap works is no one has to pay back more than twice what they originally borrowed um, in interest and, and charges. So if so I were to
2: take a loan of £100, I wouldn't pay more than 200 pounds once all the interest and charges have been added
3: that's it yeah exactly right um and that's had a really profound effect um uh for borrowers um who are as I said, tend to be people on low incomes and precarious work, very vulnerable to the debt trap that I've talked about, this cycle of taking on debt to cover basic needs, refinancing and then the overall debt burden growing. So the regulator um, itself has said um, that the the cap has um, saved payday loan borrowers about £150 million in total so far. And we know that it's driven a lot more um, responsibility within the industry in terms of checking the affordability of loans and also some quite significant um, changes in the structure of the industry. Industry with the collapse of Wonga. Um, as part of its recent high cost credit review, the um, regulator has decided to extend that cap, that overall cost cap, also on the rent to own sector.
2: Now, it- rent to own is retailers like Bright House, where you go along, you want to buy a fridge, it might cost £300 to buy it outright, but you agree to pay it on a weekly basis and you end up paying way more <laughs> than the, the goods are actually worth.
3: Absolutely, yep. Yeah. So it's another um, sector which is really renowned for predatory and exploitative lending um, and through its consultation the FCA has has decided that the best remedy to tackle that is similarly to introduce a cap on rent own which we really welcome. Our concern is that there are still two big sectors of um, unsecured consumer credit where there's no cap, credit cards and doorstep lending and this partial approach we don't believe is, is sufficient to actually address the, the growing risk of the household debt trap that, that families face across the
2: country. Now, your campaign has attracted the support of 28 charities and organisations. This week, you wrote to City Minister John Glenn, urging him to force the FCA to have a rethink. Um, tell us about the kinds of people who are supporting you.
3: So, then the End Trap Coalition is a, um, a group of six um, charities, campaigning organisations and think tanks that have come together to tackle this big issue of the growing household debt trap. On this campaign, for a cap on the cost of credit, we've um, got, as you said, around 28 organisations that have signed up to support that demand. They range from uh, children's charities who are really seeing the sharp end of the, the impact of the debt trap on families, on their incomes, on their anxiety levels, on their, their basic destitution levels, uh, also trade unions representing Some of the most precarious workers, think tanks, research organisations, and other non governmental organisations. And we privately wrote to the Economic Secretary John Glenn a few months ago, urging him to to press the FCA to introduce a market wide cap, particularly in the context of um, the economic uncertainty of Brexit and the possibility that the FCA isn't going to have another opportunity to actually introduce such a remedy for another three years um, uh, with the end of its high cost credit review. We were um, not happy with the response that we received on that. So um, the letter that you've covered um, is actually asking for something stronger, which is for the Treasury to investigate whether actually a regulatory failure has occurred. Um, The FCA has a statutory duty to protect consumers. The Treasury has also given it the power to introduce a cap on the cost of credit if it sees that as necessary to protect consumers. We think that the FCA's failure to actually introduce a cap in this round, this review of its high cost credit, does potentially amount to uh, regulatory failure and we'd like the, the Treasury to investigate that.
2: Now, last night you had an event in the House of Commons with various MPs who also support your group um, and you heard from people um, from another campaign group against um, high cost credit about the actual effects of high credit card debts. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
3: Sure. So our event last night was um, co-hosted by the Unfair Debt Group, which is a group of East Londoners um, who have experienced a problem in debtedness and have come together um, to try and actually uh, press for the policy change uh, that we need uh, the government to implement to tackle the issues that they face um, uh, and and to stop these these problems spiralling out of control. The stories that we heard in Parliament last night really uh, reinforce our understanding of of the, the problem of the debt trap already, which is that it's a shock to income which pushes people to have to take out this kind of high-cost credit and then which pushes it into the debt trap. So we heard um, a story about a lady whose husband had had an accident. She actually had savings. She used all of her savings um, to try and uh, to make the the fitting and changes to the house so that her husband could actually get around. But she also took out about £11,000 worth of credit card debt also to make those changes. She's now paid back uh, more than three times that amount, uh, about £35,000 on her credit card, and she's still got the the original principal of, uh, of 11,000. She hasn't paid anything back off the principal yet. Um, and she talked about the practices, the kind of practices that we um, we see uh, across the credit card market where um, people make their repayments, then they are um, uh, given an, an increase on their credit limit without asking for it. They borrow more. There's no affordability check. Each time, each time the credit limit is increased, really what we should see is a credit card provider seeing if the, the borrower can actually afford that new level of credit there's no affordability check um, required at that stage and so we see this kind of spiralling of credit card debt and then people paying more and more of their incomes just to make the interest payments.
2: Well... We approached the FCA and the Treasury for comments. Um, the FCA said that it introduced caps on high-cost short-term credit and rent-to-own as it assessed that to be the most appropriate intervention in those markets. But simple caps won't always deliver the right outcomes for consumers, which is why they take an evidence-based approach, tailoring how they intervene to the issue. They have made a lot of changes to the way that credit card um, lenders can pass on charges to customers, they say, claiming this will save between £310 million and £1.3 billion a year in lower interest. Charges, which perhaps give you an idea of the extent of this problem. Um, and they also say that they will continue to monitor how the consumer credit market is serving its customers. Where we see harm, we will take action. The Treasury added, we want people struggling with problem debt to get the support they need. We've given the Financial Conduct Authority strong powers to protect consumers who borrow money, including cracking down on payday lenders and capping the cost of rent to own and taking action on overdraft fees. We've also increased funding to the Money and Pension Service for free debt advice to almost £56 million this year, the Treasury has, and are introducing a breathing space scheme to give people with problem debt time to get their finances back on track. Well, let's hope they hurry up and get the breathing space scheme introduced soon because it's already been delayed for much longer than we would like well thank you very much there to sarah jane clifton director of the jubilee debt campaign and member of end the debt trap you can read more on this story on ft.com money including my report from inside the call center of one of the uk's biggest debt helplines Any wealth manager will tell you that the best way to avoid paying inheritance tax is giving your money away while you are still alive. But the fiendishly complicated rules surrounding inheritance tax, or IHT for short, make you lose the will to live. The wonderfully named Office for Tax Simplification was commissioned by none other than the Chancellor Philip Hammond 18 months ago to work out how to reform what has been dubbed Britain's most hated tax. Well, their recommendations were finally published last week and here to talk us through them is Emma Ajimang, FT Money reporter. Welcome Emma. Hi Claire. So the biggest change um, perhaps is ending what is known as the seven-year rule. Yeah,
4: that's right. So any wealth manager you'll meet will tell you one of the best ways to reduce your inheritance tax bill is actually give away assets whilst you're alive. And um, these are subject to a regime called the potentially exempt transfer. Um, doesn't sound very exciting. <laughs> I know, but, there's uh, so much to simplify. <laughs> but it's actually a very useful tool for people wanting to reduce their inheritance tax. Because um, if you give away an asset and you live for more than seven years, that asset, regardless of its value, is now um, out of scope for
2: inheritance tax. So it could be something worth millions of pounds. Yeah, I could absolutely. give you, you know, I don't know, my Picasso painting that was yeah, yeah. stashed in the attic. That exactly. Could, so long as you live, for, so long as I live for seven years, you won't have to pay any inheritance That's tax. right. And so they're going to do what
4: to this? Well, the OTS is proposing to make it, um, in some ways, easier for people to use this rule, um, And they are reducing the time that people have to live for IHT not to apply from seven years to five years. And that means that actually people have to survive less time um, and so are more likely to be able to pass assets down in this way.
2: In the main, wealth managers have welcomed this change because you won't have to stay alive for as long in order to avoid the tax five years if the recommendations are implemented. However, they are concerned about the cliff edge because if you were to survive for four years and 364 days and then you died, a loss of tax could potentially be due.
4: Yeah, that's true. Um, I suppose that's a trade-off that the OTS has done. Um, So it now becomes an all-or-nothing kind of relief if you survive for more than five years, you get it. If you don't, as you say, even by one day, you don't get it. Um, so that's that's what they're, they're proposing to do instead.
2: Now, the other area that they want to shake up are the gifting allowances. Now... We won't go too much into it because, frankly, we could be here all afternoon. But <laughs> at the moment, you can give away £3,000 um, as um, a cumulative um, allowance. You can give as many individuals as you wish, £250 um, per year tax-free. If your child gets married, as a little bird tells me you are, <laughs> um, a parent can give their child up to £5,000. You know, it's just the, the list goes on. It's yeah. barely endless. But they want to simplify that by just saying One
4: yeah they do and i think it's a it's a very good uh, proposal and it was welcomed by many wealth managers because as you say it's it, it's it's too confusing people don't really understand how all these different allowances work together and also it's not very simple to understand because they all work together in different ways so um by proposing to just have one allowance which um they didn't Decide the limit. Well, yes, I was going to say <laughs> that's the that's the that's the one thing that um you know would be a key thing to know about what this allowance is, how much it
2: is, um particularly for parents who might be thinking of passing on um you know a, a property deposit, say mm. now. One thing the OTS did say in its report was that all of these different gifting allowances generally haven't changed since they were introduced in the 70s and 80s. Yep. So take that £3,000 um, individual gifting allowance, which currently exists, if that had been allowed to rise with inflation, it would now be nearly 12000
4: Yeah, it's a big difference. Um, and I think you mentioned the, um, the wedding gift allowance. Mm. Um, that was, I think, brought in in 1981, where you could give um, a maximum of £5,000. And, you know, in 1981, I'm sure that would have gone a very long way, (laughs) planning the wedding. (laughs) But I can tell you that that doesn't go too far these days. Um, So there is an argument that the government needs to look at these limits because they haven't changed for such a long time.
2: OK, well, one final um, point of detail, the gifts from existing income. Now... If you are making somebody a regular gift from your existing income and there are a few hundred wealthy families, um, according to the statistics that um, HMRC provided the OTS with, who do this, um, you don't have to pay inheritance tax and it's not subject to the seven year rule, but it's very hard to prove that. Mm. Um, What exactly has been paid? And some families, I was staggered to read in your report, are using it to give away a million pounds out of their existing income every year. Yep, I
4: mean, that is a very fortunate position to be in. Um, To be fair, the the OTS didn't say how many people were doing that, but under this rule, they're completely entitled to do that. So, as you say, this rule allows people to give away unlimited amounts of money um, to whoever they, they choose, um, as long as it's a regular gift and as long as um, it doesn't affect their own lifestyle. And for some people, for example, wealthy pensioners who have really good um final salary schemes mm-hmm. and have paid off mortgage, for example, they might have very low living costs and, and quite a high income. So this has been quite a um lucrative and valuable relief that they've been able to use to, to give money to whoever they want and to also reduce the IHT. And bill. it's this
2: it's this perceived sense of unfairness mm. that I think really gets people's goats about inheritance tax so I'm just going to read out one reader comment that this was you can recommend comments now um, on the FT website um, and this was the most recommended comment on your story um, from a reader who says inheritance tax is a wholly voluntary tax any specialist tax lawyer or accountant will tell you that the UK's annual £5 billion IHT bill is only paid by the wealthier middle classes who have less ability to avoid it through tax planning. Virtually none is paid by the UK's wealthiest. Well, a pretty critical um, assumption. How can we hope that the OTS reforms may be put into practice by the Chancellor, ever? Um It's
4: an interesting question. <laughs> um, and certainly the thing was that the Chancellor, as you mentioned right at the start, he did commission this review. And so um, that suggests you know they would be willing to listen. But it's... If, even if they do come into um, place, these recommendations, it's not going to be overnight. It is going to take quite a long time because they will have to be put to public consultation and then draft legislation to be go through the usual channels. And that's all assuming that we have the same Chancellor and the same government, which, as you know, in <laughs> these days is quite a hard assumption to make. Um, so if we have a, a different Chancellor, which seems pretty likely... Well, a Labour Chancellor. Or a Labour Chancellor... You know, who knows what will happen to these proposals? And the
2: reforms could be slightly different. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> in the event of that happening. Well, you can read Emma's full um, piece, What Does the Future Hold for Inheritance Tax? which also includes information about a potential shake up for those of you who have got AIM shares and also changes to capital gains tax rules, which could come in. That will be online from Friday on ft.com slash money or you can read all about it in the FT Weekend newspaper available from Saturday. That's it from the FT Money Show this week. If you would like to get in touch with us to comment on any of the stories we've mentioned or indeed suggest something else for us to debate our email address is money at ft.com You can follow us on Twitter for the latest news updates. Our handle is at FT Money and you can also check out our new page on LinkedIn FT Money to be updated with articles throughout the week. We will be next week at the usual time. Goodbye.